Hi, this is Af Malhotra on Straight Talk with Af. Now, once again, I have a fantastic guest on my show today and someone uh, who I admire and has been around the block, as they say in the UK, in many jobs, in many executive positions, in many entrepreneurial roles, and of course, now a thought leader, an author. And actually what he's going to do the next phase of his life, which I'll let him tell you about, is even more intriguing and compelling because he's going to find a way for people in small groups to come together to solve serious problems and to work in unity and in a community. And that's something that's very, very close to my heart. And for all of you straight talkers, you know that's something that we promote. So without further ado, welcome to Straight Talk with Af, John Hagel. It's a pleasure and honor to have you on the show today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity for sure. Uh, John, you are a um, an ambidextrous human being and multifaceted, and you have done so many things in your life, and you've come to this juncture in your life, eight books later, 42 years in Silicon Valley, right, um, with so many different roles from McKinsey to Atari, and uh, Atari, we had Nolan on the show multiple times, so we have some sort of a, a view of Atari, which was a fascinating organization. You've been uh, a management consultant You've, uh, I believe, re recently retired or retired from Deloitte, which was your last gig. And uh, you're, of course, you're a speaker. And now you're not going to stop now. You're not going to let any form of barrier or um, uh, anything uh, s s similar to that hold you back. You're onto the next phase of your journey, which is so aspirational and admiring for people like us or me because we have things ticking all the time and once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. And your role models, people like you and many others who've come on the show, like Nolan, Jeff Moore, various others, all role models who continue to, even at later stages in their lives, to charge ahead with the next mission, next purpose, next um, passion project. So uh, before I go into the book, which of course we will, I, the, the sort of uh, the tradition on straight talk is to, first try and figure out who you are and you have this incredible story and it wouldn't I wouldn't do any justice to ask you to talk about your life story in 40 minutes or 45 minutes mm. or an hour but I would love you to just give us a whistle-stop tour of um that that journey that you've had in your life especially in relation to the book and fear because I do know you had some trouble during your childhood you've been through uh some tough relationships and and a couple of divorces You've been through different challenges in your work life. Um, I've had a very troubled, dark health past. I've had, I've been through burnouts in my startup. Gosh, there's quite a lot of trauma there. But we'd love people to see the human side of you. Uh, of course, you're you're a master at your trade, but the human side of you, the the harder side. And then I'd love you to just bring it back to where you are today, and then we'll go right into the book, if that's okay. The floor is yours. Well, I'm not sure where to start or how far to go. It's, uh... <laughs> Yeah, I grew up in a different country every year as a child, and um, my, my mother, unfortunately, had some very significant anger issues, and so I grew up with her in rage constantly and telling me that I, you know, I was a burden and that I shouldn't exist, that things would have been a lot easier without me, and so, um, and because I was in a different country every year, I didn't have a large network of friends or family that I could turn to to, you know, give me some support. So I had to just endure it all myself. 
Um, and I started at a very early age becoming intrigued with uh, science fiction. Um, and uh, at the time, science fiction was very utopian. It was all about the incredible, wonderful futures ahead of us. And that gave me hope and inspiration to endure the, the anger and the challenges of my childhood. And I've always, since then, been focused on trying to look into the future and seeing opportunities that are very exciting. And um, that really became my passion is to help people see those opportunities and, um, and to not only see them, but be motivated to address them. And so that's been my, my thread, common thread through all the different uh, activities that I've been doing for decades and more to come mm -hmm. for sure. Did you have, have you always been in the States, in the United States? No, I said I grew up in a different country every year as a oh, child. Okay. So okay. Um, okay. I, I was in Latin America and Europe, uh, the yeah. different countries. And then and as an undergraduate, I majored in African and Asian studies because I hadn't spent any time in those continents. And then to round it out, I did a graduate degree in modern Middle Eastern studies so that I could have a wow. chance to explore the Middle East. So I very much have a global kind of uh, perspective. And yeah. Yeah. Did you, um, did you have siblings or were you an only child? I had one sister so just slightly younger than me. So a small family. Yeah. yeah. And uh you know, I'm sorry to hear that. And it reminds me of um, one of my one of my previous guests, Ed Hajim. I don't know if you know Ed. He he now um, runs. You know, he's he's later on in his life. He's got many grandkids, but he he's now a hedge fund a manager or chair uh, at High Vista, and he is, he's done various you know, leadership roles. But he, you know, much like you, he had this sort of frenetic past where he went from orphanage to orphanage, hmm. and. Um, you know, now he's in his 70s and I had a show with him a few months ago. And it, it reminds me of that conversation because his outlook on life is just, it's just incredibly positive. And he talks about his past and he talks about his book. He's got these memoirs that he wrote. He said it was an accidental journey. I needed to get over this relationship with my father uh, and uh, who said my mother had died for many years. And then it was a lie. And eventually I realized my mother was alive and, and the rest is history. And how he dealt with fear, he dealt with anger and frustration, and how he built himself up individually. And it's just a fascinating story, which sounds, you know, it's it's akin to, I guess, the journey you've been on, where a parent is so important. A These days, parenting is very gentle. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a uh, I'm a middle aged father in the sense that I'm in my I'm going to be 45. I had my kids much later, two and a half and four and a half, boy and a girl, and. I have to tell you, parenting is very, very different today. It's, you know, it's kid gloves and it's ultra active and you're fully focused on your child like a laser, um, as opposed to the old days where you were sort of, you know, floating around and the village was raising you. Um, I'm going to come to the next gen few generations in a moment because there's some questions I have for you in terms of the future of humanity, um, you know, especially in relation to the book. But so you did all of this. So how did you fall into work? So what was your first gig? Were you straight into like a corporate job or did you go into entrepreneurship? But what was your first try, you know, bite at the apple? How did you do it? In terms of full-time work, um, 
But my first job was with Boston Consulting Group uh, as a consultant. And um, it was interesting. I was um, in the joint program at Harvard University with a JD and an MBA, a law degree and a business degree. And very early on, I, I saw that I did not want to be a lawyer. And um, for the last summer in the program, um, I had was interviewing with all the law firms because I felt I should at least work for a law firm for the summer just so I could say I had done it. Mm -hmm. The more interviews I did, the more depressed I became. And uh, one day in the recruiting office, I saw a uh, notice that um, this company called Boston Consulting Group was going to be interviewing at the law school. And at the time, I didn't really know much about them, except they were not a law firm. And uh, so I signed up for the interview and went into the first interview with the partner. And first thing I said to him was, um, if you don't give me an offer for the summer, I'm going to have to go work for a law firm and I'm going to commit suicide. <laughs> and uh, he took great pity on me and um, gave me an offer. And uh, for those in the U.S., I guess, um, his name was Mitt Romney. He was uh, rather... Oh, uh -huh. Okay. became a rather famous politician and um so i'm eternally grateful to Mitt romney for having saved my life it was uh yeah you know what i, I i'd say something interesting what you just said because these days as you as you realize podcasts are very popular you know and sound bites and and people don't want to spend too much time. I mean, we even our one-hour episode, not many want to listen to the whole hour, so they listen to the shorts or the synopsis or the summary, as you probably know. And so when we do do the editing, uh, we'll be cautious about not taking that bit out where you say, I just said I'm going to commit suicide, because that might be the line that most most people use when they go for their pay rise or something. <laughs> say, if you don't do this, I'm just going to commit suicide. Hey, John, John Hagel said it worked, so I'm going to go for it. Uh, disclaimer total disclaimer there Please. um so so you got into consulting and then you, you've also had some entrepreneurial gigs so from a shift from consulting how do you make the shift from consulting into entrepreneurship what, what happened there well i was uh working i ended up working at bcg after i graduated for two years and um I was, again, always intrigued by looking ahead into the future. By the way, my first book I wrote in 1976, and it was on alternative energy technologies, solar, nuclear fusion. Um, so again, from an early age, I was looking into the future. And I, when I was at BCG, I was seeing the emergence of uh, microcomputers and the exponential improvement in price performance of the technology. And um, I had spent a summer in, in uh, the Bay Area in Silicon Valley, and I was intrigued by the optimism that I saw out there. So I had decided to start my own business in the computer business, even though I had never used a computer in my life, much less uh, studied technology. I had no technology background, but I was so excited about the opportunity that the computers were going to create. And so that was my uh, motivation. It gave me an excuse to move out to Silicon Valley, and I've never looked back. And what was that company? Was it, was, did you sell it? Did you fold it? Did you, uh, what did you it, do? Well, it, was, it sold turnkey computer systems to doctors in private practice. 
small practices up to 10 physicians and it was one of the first uh, desktop computers to be used for that kind of purpose and um, I built it up for a couple of years it became the largest um, the largest uh, company in that in that particular segment or market and um, I sold it to a larger company wow yeah. and then you had the bug did you have the bug then and you did one more entrepreneurship gig or you went into the corporate well, at that point, I actually got recruited into uh, Atari in the video game business. Right. So right. that was uh, my next uh, my next stop. So you so what year was this? You said nineteen. Well, so uh, I, I exited uh, from my startup in nineteen eighty two and joined wow. Atari in nineteen eighty two. Wow. So you were you were working with Nolan on on the business at that point. No, no Nolan had already moved on. He was. Okay. moving into uh his um restaurant business yeah um, chuck e cheese or something chuck e cheese yeah yeah <laughs> that's another interesting story and so so you did that and then you you also had a couple of other gigs again with entrepreneurship another few sort of uh interactions in with you inter- your your entrepreneurial side is that right well i i did one other startup in the tech yeah. business and um I've worked with entrepreneurs as a consultant and advisor for decades. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, given that you've, you know, you you find you don't find many folks who sort of travel in and out of the um, the elevators from corporate to entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship to corporate. You know, sometimes you have you leave the corporate and then you get into entrepreneurship and you're just a serial. You get you get addicted and you just keep doing the same thing again because you just can't work for another big organization for a variety of different reasons so you seem to be you you've gone back and forth and so on for a variety of reasons um you've written many books so you talked about the book in 1976 well wow, that was a long time ago um yeah. not that i'm trying to make you feel old but it was before i was born <laughs> um, but, but you know incredible talking about alternative energy at that time it's just uh, just phenomenal real pleasure and um, this this particular book, um, the journey beyond fear, it's a it's a fascinating book. And tell us a little bit about what was the you know, I mean you've you've done so many things, you've been through so many uh, life stages. What what was the knees or what compelled you to script this out to write this story and and of course the narrative that goes with it? Because I do know that you define nar- story and narrative in two different ways, which we'll come to. Yeah, no, um, there were several kind of catalysts along the way I my business career was broadly in business strategy I was trained to believe that if you have the right strategy you win strategy is everything and over the years I've come to believe that it's less about strategy and more about psychology that if we don't understand the emotions that are shaping our choices and actions the best strategy is just going to sit on a shelf somewhere so I became more and more focused on understanding emotional environments and um and then I started writing a book about seven years ago and at the time I was traveling around the world as part of my work and I was struck that everywhere I went uh, the dominant emotion that I was encountering was fear at the highest levels of organizations lowest levels out in the community and while I think it's understandable I think it's also a very limiting emotion. And so I was driven to write a book to, first of all, help people to acknowledge fear, but then right. find ways to move beyond it and cultivate emotions that would help them to have more impact that's meaningful to them. 
Do you do you find that uh, it's interesting? I was going to ask you about international travel. Um, one of the one of the experiences that I've had, if I take a market like uh, so, e let's take the East and West for now, just for a moment, post post globalism globalism or globalization era that we're in, sort of, which is rife with a lot of stress. And I, you talk about that in your book, you know, geopolitics, war, uh, AI. You can list a whole bunch of things: economic pressures, inflation and so on and so forth. Uh, what I find interesting is, and it's hard to put my finger on it, but uh, there's a <laughs> vibration you get or a vibe you get based on the dialogue that you're having with individuals or communities as you enter different countries. In the West, certainly in the United Kingdom, I feel fear is rife for all the reasons you know and I know. I haven't traveled to the US for a while, but when I was there, you know, Trump was empowered at that point. It was during COVID and I haven't been back since then. It was a different phase for the U.S., and there's it's going through a very, very interesting time, which is for another show. And then I've traveled out to India, and most recently, when I went to India, the pulse and the vibe is different. You know, I have seen sphere in the past because of the scarcity model in India and the trust deficit and the divide, and we all know about that. But generally speaking, the revival of or the boosting of the entrepreneurial economy, the startup tech economy. 104 unicorns in India now. I mean, that 35 or 40 grew out of COVID and so on. So it's a booming startup economy. Right now, the vibe I pick up is less about fear. Of course, if I go down to the, the shanty towns, that might be a different conversation. But I'm talking about the cosmopolitan areas, the, the main main cities. There's a, the young people. So 60% of the country is below 28. The young vibe is about opportunity. As you, as you put it, opportunity, we can make this happen. And the, the slogans and the strap lines, and I know you talk a, lo a lot about in your book. And of course that changes, it goes in different phases and cycles. I'd love your viewpoint and perspective because you're so well-traveled and you've studied other markets. How do you see cultural shifts, economic shifts and, and uh, na national dynamics or you know um, those factors affecting the general fear equilibrium? Uh, do you do you see that making a difference, or it's agnostic? Well, obviously, there are differences depending on cultures and generations and whatever. But even with all those differences, my experience is that the dominant emotion, the prevailing emotion, and spreading emotion is one of fear. And I think specifically, I, I should clarify when I talk about fear, I'm talking about fear of the future. When right. you look into the future, do you see primarily threat or opportunity? And I believe more and more people around the world are looking into the future and seeing it as very threatening. It's scary. I'm not sure I want to go there. I want to focus on what I can hold on to today and mm. hope that I can survive. Um, but but I, I guess, are you seeing that as, you know, I talk about making friends with uncertainty. Is that because it's ambiguous, it's unknown? Or what is your what is your definition of fear in the context of the future? I mean, what have you seen? What have been the sort of different manifestations of it? Examples, for example. Well, the, the forces that are shaping this fear, I believe, are there are three forces. One is intensifying competition on a global scale. So no matter how successful you are, wherever you are, there are people from parts of the world that you never even knew are going to come and attack you and compete with you, um, the accelerating pace of change, things you thought you could count on are no longer there. And then because of all the connectivity we've created around the world, some 
extreme disruptive event comes in out of nowhere. Dare I mention the pandemic as just one example of that kind of extreme disruptive event. Any one of those three alone would be pretty scary, but all three together is very scary. And that's, again, I think it's very understandable that there is fear, um, but it's a very limiting emotion. And so I'm driven to want to help people move beyond the fear and, and also acknowledge the fear. I mean, one of the issues I, I run into is people say, oh, come on, you know, uh, I haven't heard many people express fear, but we live in cultures around the world where expressing fear is a sign of weakness. You're weakling if you're afraid. So why would you want to say you're afraid? I believe, one of, and we find other emotions to express. And one of the emotions that I believe is is anger. If you look under the under anger, the anger that's erupting around the world, a lot of it, if not all of it, is driven by fear. They're angry because they're under attack. They're afraid. And um, so I think that, uh, yeah, getting people to just acknowledge the fear, that they have fear um, to themselves and then recognize that it's very limiting and find ways to move beyond it, I think, is, mm. is key. Mm. Can I just break those three th things down just m momentarily, if, if that's okay? So the yeah. first one was f competition. And now, of course, we've known about competition for decades and you know you've taught it you've talked about it strategists have talked about it. competitive strategy we have data on it and, and so on and so forth i guess what you're alluding to is this kind of uh, in, in fact i'll let you answer the question but is it to do with uh, competition are you talking about supply to supply competition or are you talking about an individual level where you feel like your jobs are going to be taken or someone will replace you, like you say in your book, you know, imagine, did you know that there are a million people waiting to take your job? I think you have that in, 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 in your book somewhere. Is that, what, what do you mean by competition? If you wouldn't mind just unpacking that, it'd be great. I think it applies at both levels, at the level of the individual. Uh, we're yeah. being increasingly facing a competitive labor market and a market where now one of the big sources of fear is artificial intelligence. It's going to take my job. I'm going to be out of work. That's competition. I'm competing with machines now, not just with other human beings. And then at the corporate level, you know, there's competition in the world in the marketplace for customers. Customers are becoming more and more demanding. There are options competing from around the world. It doesn't have to be just from my my town or my country. It can be from anywhere in the world. Mm. That's scary too. Mm. And are you seeing um, are you seeing any differences between one part of the world and another? So, like in the U.S., are you seeing that? accelerate is it stabilizing are you seeing other parts of the world where you see that you know if almost if you could do a pulse check uh, around the world in real time are you seeing any particular nations that are more prone to this where you see the sentiment much stronger uh, clearly there's some variation but again what's what prompted me to write the book was i was struck at how prevalent this emotion was in all parts of the world mm. not just in one part and uh, again, I think in all generations, not just all parts of the world, all generations, and it's just, um, mm. Mm. and again, I think it's understandable. 
if you're about to lose your job, or if your things you thought you could count on are no longer there, or if you've got some yeah. totally unexpected event coming at you, why wouldn't you be afraid? Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And then the second area, just moving on to the second one, which is about accelerated pace of change. I know change has been happening. It's constant in everything we do. It, it, what in particular is the, the, is the trigger here uh, for, for the, the fear acceleration? What, what aspect of this change? Um, well, it varies again. I mean, if you talk about it at the corporate level, one of the things that I think is becoming more and more, uh, people are more and more aware of is the shrinking of product life cycles. Yes. It used to be if you came out with a great new product, I can retire. This is wonderful. I'm going to have this product that's going to support me. Now, the question is, what's your next product? And how quickly can you get into the market? Because your existing product is going to become obsolete at an accelerating rate. So God forbid, that's the accelerating pace of change there. And then as individuals, you know, you, many people went to universities, training centers, got in certain skills. And they thought this was going to be the basis for their for their career, for their life. Mm. Guess what? The skills are becoming obsolete. And they need to develop new skills. And that's scary. And so mm. it, again, it depends on, you know, whether we're talking about individuals or organizations, but I think it's widespread. Mm. I can relate to that second point personally a lot, and I'm just being vulnerable at this moment because when I was building my tech startup, I have to tell you, 2016-17, it was a data company, and we did we did hit that we did hit that um, storm like we were at the center of that hurricane or storm or tsunami, whatever you want to call it, because the pressure to continue to keep developing the roadmap. You know, we built a product, that, you know, we couldn't sort of sit back and relax. We built the product and it was like, well, what about the next one? But what? And the, the pressure wasn't just the product obsolescence issue. It wasn't just about, oh, the competition's going to eat you up because we had a bit of an advantage. It was also the pressure from the investors and just the mm. market in general, which was like, more, more, we want more. And right. I, I have to tell you, I had two burnouts in my startup. And, you know, I'll take full responsibility for that. That's okay. I'll take responsibility for my own burnouts. But um, I see that across many entrepreneurs and colleagues and, and fellows who are founders and entrepreneurs in the tech community. And some don't even talk about it because, of course, they don't want to tell people that they, they're in trouble or they want to, right. don't want to reveal the fear or the pain or the failure, if you want to call it yeah. that. Um, and that's, that's, that's not good. And I, I hear that. I hear that I've suffered it myself. And it's not gone away. I think it's got worse with with the generation AI, generative AI uh, models that are out there that I'm playing with right now as well. Because obsolescence is much more. It's just the cycle has to be even faster because you and I can both access large language models. They're on tap now. Yeah. So where's yeah. the differentiation? Unlike you know the old days, I built a CRM software. No one's going to be able to do that code for another fifteen years and so on. So you know that's how Larry Ellison well, became Larry Ellison, I guess to some extent. Yeah. Um, the third point is about pan the pandemic. So I guess what you're talking about here is, of course, COVID when it hit us and it just shook everyone, really. Um, and that's when this podcast was born. You know, I was I was I just came back from the States. I had um, COVID just hit. Trump had announced this emergency. The airspace was being closed uh, at JFK. And I had to take a flight back with my family. I was going to migrate to New York. And 
To top that up, I had a health episode. I had to have emergency surgery in, 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 in Stanford Hospital in Connecticut. It was just awful. Anyway, I came back and all this stuff was going on and we, we, need, we needed some sort of salvation. So I opened up this door. I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to meet people again. I may as well have this like rectangular box and find John to give me some, some wisdom and some knowledge and, and self-belief. But there is one thing I want to throw into this mix and I'd like your comment on it. It's a, ser- it's a serious issue. And it's the World Health Organization report, the, the mental well-being report that came out in 2023. I don't know if you're aware of this. Essentially, what they're telling the world is there's another pandemic that's here now. It's all over the place, which is mental health, which talks to fear, by the way, talks to fear. And one in three, I just give you an example. One in three teenage girls are clinically depressed. The ones that we know have have let us know. One in six adults are clinically depressed. And they believe the acceleration of these numbers is um, scary. It's worrying. It's terrifying, actually. Um. And I want you to just comment on that briefly, if I may, because I'm sure you're seeing this around you. And I'm not just going to blame the young, you know, Gen Z and the, the emerging Gen Alpha and then whenever the Gen Beta come along, my kids and so on. What's your perspective on this? Because um, it is a pandemic post-COVID now. I think this is the next pandemic that we're not even talking about, really. Yeah, well, I mean, again, it gets into the question of emotions. What are the emotions that are shaping us? and I think increasingly fear can lead to very dysfunctional, you know, depression and even suicide, and drug use, and um, there, there are a lot of ways of manifesting that fear. But um, I, I think it's just an indication that things are not well, and that we need to address what's driving that. Why are people so depressed now? Why are you know, people committing suicide at an accelerating rate. Just, mm. yeah. Mm. And that brings me to your book and the core thesis of your book, really, which um, is, I think, simple and yet so important and effective for mm. everyone to sort of pretty much go back to. Uh, I'll let you encapsulate the book in short as to, so, so what is this book really about and who is it for? Well, again, the book is for anyone who is experiencing fear. Um, And um, it could be their own fear. It could also be if they're leaders of organizations or in the communities, recognizing the fear of the people that they're leading and recognizing that that's a very limiting emotion. And so helping them to, first of all, realize how limiting the emotion is, but then helping them to make that journey beyond fear and find ways to cultivate other emotions that will help people to have much more impact. And that's that's the focus of the book, is that you're outlining that journey. And you, you talk about some very important tools that people can actually leverage. I know you've talked about this repeatedly in a lot of your other podcasts and shows. If I could request you to do it one more time, just so for those who haven't read the book and those who will be compelled to go out and buy the book, give us a bit of a sense of what these tools really are all about. Well, it's complicated. I talk about three pillars, and yeah. basically, I, I, at the high level, I call it narrative, passion, and platform are the three pillars. The challenge is I have different definitions for all three of those words than most people do, so um, it requires explanation. And 
the narrative, just to illustrate, is um, when I talk about narrative, most people say, oh, you're talking about stories. And no, I, I think there's a distinction that we can and should make. That stories are self-contained. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end to them. And the story is about me, the storyteller, about some other people we have imagined. It's not about you. In contrast, for me, a narrative is open-ended. There is there's some kind of threat or opportunity out in the future, not clear whether it's going to be achieved or not. And the resolution of the narrative hinges um, on uh, you. It's a call to action to say your choices, your actions are going to um, determine how this resolves. So, and I think we have personal narratives. I talk about corporate or institutional narratives. I talk about geographic narratives and movement narratives. So narratives can play out at multiple levels, but it can be a catalyst to help people see a different future and recognize they need to act to address that future, that opportunity in the future. Mm. Um, and then passion, again, everybody has a different definition of passion, but um, the uh, focus for me is, uh, based on my research, is on a very specific form of passion that I call the passion of the explorer. And I believe that's the that's the passion that can really help excite and motivate people to move beyond the fear, in spite of the fear. Um, and narratives can be a catalyst to draw out that passion. I believe we all have the potential for that passion, the capability for it. Um, and then platforms is the third pillar. And again, different definition. I'm not talking about platforms that we all know and talked about today i'm talking about a different form of platform that has not yet been developed which i call a learning platform and here it's not learning in the form of sharing existing knowledge like videos of courses and workshops uh, lectures it's um learning in the form of creating entirely new knowledge that never existed before and what if we could design a platform where the primary design goal is to help all the participants to learn faster in the form of creating new knowledge. What would that platform look like? And I believe that can scale the passion and reinforce the passion if, if people can connect on those platforms and pursue things. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because of course that's super interesting now because we're moving towards the future. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you have in mind and how, you, how you're sort of envisaging the, the formation of this. Well, it's um, it's complicated. I think it's, um, again, a, a key theme in my book is that we're going to be much more successful in moving beyond fear if we come together in small groups. I right. call them impact groups of three to 15 people forming deep trust-based relationships with each other. And they're groups that are not discussion groups. They're action and impact groups. They're driven to have more and more impact in a specific area. And so the platforms that I'm talking about, the core unit of the platform would be a shared workspace where these impact groups could come together and work together. And it would provide real-time feedback to the impact group in terms of the impact that they're achieving so that they can learn from the action and evolve their actions to have even more impact, but then help them to connect, each impact group to connect with a lot of other impact groups 
so that they can learn from the experience of more and more people. And I think um, that's a huge opportunity out there. Mm. And what what do you think would prevent someone from doing that? Or what are you seeing as being the psychological um, traits or behaviors or habits that could stop us saying, wow, I mean, this is a no-brainer, of course, John. We all should do this. Uh, you mean in terms of forming one of these platforms? or uh, Yeah, in terms of adoption, in terms of adoption, you know, whatever it may look like, whether it's technologically based or it's physical or virtual, whatever it may be. What, what, what do you see as being the reasons why someone would not want to participate? What would hold, is it back to fear or what, what is your view on yeah, that? Yeah, the, the, the focus of the platform is drawing people who already have cultivated a passion for more and more impact. They're driven to have more impact and they will see that by connecting more effectively in real time with feedback, that they're going to have much more impact. So they're going to be excited about this. They will join immediately. Um, The people who are driven by fear, no, this is not going to be um, something that they will immediately want to participate in. But as they hopefully overcome their fear and find their passion, they'll want to join too. Mm. And I, I, is this, uh, are you seeing this as a commercial endeavor as well? So not for you personally, but in, 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 terms of, in terms of, let's say I'm, I'm passionate, I have a clear narrative and I'm passionate about, and I, I'm seeking a platform to progress the impact I can make with diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, using AI, the intersection of the two. Um, is that me going into this group to elevate my ideas and to do more with other people in a, in a philanthropic way and or commercial way, or how do you envisage this playing itself out in a more pragmatic and pragmatic terms? No, I believe that the platform, the platform itself it is a commercial enterprise. And right. I, I think, again, one key difference with the platforms that we have today is I believe this kind of platform needs to be paid for by the participants, not by advertisers, not by vendors who are seeking commissions for sales. It's going to be, I'm paying because I'm going to learn a lot faster. And that's exciting and very much worth my payment. And yes, there will be some, you know, scholarships or foundation money to help Mm. those who cannot afford to participate, but are driven to participate. But it's, I think, part of building trust, which is a key element of this new kind of platform, is where the people pay, not some third party that the loyalty is to the third party. It's not to the individuals who are on the platform. Mm, okay, wonderful. And so we have about 30,000 subscribers on Straight Talk. Uh, every every one of them is in their own right, some sort of an entrepreneur or an ideator. And I would imagine many of them are filled with passion, I hope anyway. And that's why they come and watch these shows. Um, is is this something you're building now? It's sort of conceptual. Uh, how can we help? How can we support the course? Because that's that's we're pragmatic too this is about moving things along as well yeah well i'm in the early stages of um my goal is to create a new center that will offer programs uh to help people making make the journey beyond fear and part of that center will be um creating this platform um you know and it may be done by a separate entity you know which is a for-profit entity but will be closely collaborating but anybody who's interested in this opportunity and potential i would encourage please 
come to my website, johnhagel.com. I have a page there where I talk about the this new center that I want to create, and you can sign up and you know reach out to me if you want to uh, contribute or participate in this. Incredible. I think you're going to have a lot of takers from our side. I certainly will do that myself because, you know, we all need to be part of this movement, whatever the movement may be, because it it sounds like we need it. And I, I'm certainly concerned about the state of mental well-being in the in, in the world right now, especially with the next generation and the one after. And I don't know what to do about it, really. You know, I'm making a difference with my my the work with my social impact venture but i can't do all of this at one time so we have to lean on each other you know right. what you're doing i'm not doing but i want to support it and many will many will um and so you have our full support from straight talk obviously and um yeah. another book in 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 the um in the works given that it's been it's been two years now so you've had oh. enough time to, to think about it. any anything else brewing right now in your mind because of course you're a, you're a serial author now well, I at least have two more books, but I'm holding off because my focus is on yeah. creating this center and uh, yeah. achieving impact from the book that I wrote. So, yeah. 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 And my last question to you, because I do admire everything that you've done. And I, I learn a lot from folks like you who've been through so many different phases of their lives. And I, I you know, it's a selfish thing. I, I'm just sitting here absorbing everything you're saying, even if I, even if my, my straight talkers aren't. And <laughs> so this is my personal time with you. We don't have a glass of wine or a whiskey or whatever, but still I, I'm imagining that I'm where you are and or you're where I am in London. And um, how would you describe, I, I know it's a hard question, but I just, I want, I would love to know, how would you describe the last 40, 50 years of your life in, in the working world? How would you sum it up in just a few words? You could, three words, five words, just, just a few words that come to mind. Well, it's been a journey. It's focusing again on helping people to see opportunities emerging in the future and motivating them to want to address those opportunities. That's what really excites me and motivates me and has yeah. driven my consulting work. It's driven my writing. It's driven my speaking. Yeah. Yeah. And final question. A young graduate has just come out of university somewhere in the world. What would you say, entrepreneurship or corporate? Wow. Um, you know, the key question for me would be, what's your passion? And uh, make sure whatever you're doing is is helping you to connect with a passion and pursue the passion. It could be entrepreneurial, it could be corporate, but the the key is to really find that passion and, and not stop until you found it and then find a work that will help you to pursue that passion. Okay. John, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Um, I, I love the way you just continue to, to power ahead. And uh, the center is important. And you have, like I said, my support. Let's do something with it. I, I certainly will want to use it for, for, for the work we're doing with the social impact cause that I'm running, if possible, if that's good, it's yeah. workable. So if you have a beta yeah. test or you want some early uh, adopters, then, you know, I'm here. And we're here, certainly the community that I have. And uh, we, I, I encourage all of our listeners to go buy the book. Of course, it's available on Amazon, I presume. And um, I will I will find a way, in a cheeky way, to maybe send you the book and you sign it for me. Because I, I have a collection 
um, no. of all the authors and I'm keeping it, you know, my kids are young. They're probably going to be like, dad, who cares about these books, but no. I'm just keeping it for my kids. So I've got all these incredible authors like yourself, some legacy, you know? Um, so if it, we'll figure that out after I stop recording as to how we can do it. Um, I'm grateful for, for everything you're doing, you've done and, you know, for taking the time to come onto my show. I know you're busy and you've got stuff going on and I really do appreciate it. So thank you very much. Uh, before I close, any feedback? How was the last 60 minutes for you? Did you did you take away anything? Was it enjoyable? What can we do better? No, great questions. It was a good conversation and it really focused on drawing me out in terms of not just my ideas, but my life, which is great. Yeah, no, we, we got a glimpse of it for sure. And um, be well, uh, look after yourself, keep smiling, and uh, all the best with the next few books and, of course, the center, which is more important. Uh, this is Af from Straight Talk with Af signing off. Do click subscribe on the bottom right somewhere there, and be well, and may the Straight Talk force be with you.